Well, everybody, welcome back to the Liberty on Fire podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Libertarian Tony. So, Conservative Joey was supposed to join me for this podcast, but I think he fell asleep. And I think he turned off his phone. I did try bugging him, but anyway, with the three-hour difference, and I'm sure he's working hard uh, these days, and he just needs his beauty sleep. Anyway, so I guess I'm going to do this one solo. Uh, The crux of the podcast is going to be just my take on some of the mass shooting issues going on. And uh, But first, I would like to just kind of address something from the last podcast. Uh, I want to clarify that, you know, when I talked about Hong Kong and China, you know, having their, their issues, that I don't want people to think that my default position is that the U.S. should interfere militarily if, if China decides to kind of militarily get themselves involved and put down the protests. I don't think that's the best use of our resources. I do think we have some sort of obligation to protect our American citizens there, um, whether it's giving them ample warning to get out or we may be sending in our own troops just to kind of extract American citizens. But direct conflict with the Chinese military and like pushing them back to mainland China would be not something I'm in favor of. That would not go well. That that would lead uh, potentially to World War III, and nobody wants that. So the next question comes up, well, if you were president of the United States, what would you do if China invaded Hong Kong, right? Because you can't just say, oh, one side is going to go in and invade and then beat up China and everything's going to be great. And another side saying, well, you don't get involved with China at all. You let them go in and take over Hong Kong. I mean, it doesn't seem very humanitarian, right? Because they're going to end up killing a lot of uh, Hong Kong citizens. So what would I do if I was president? Well, uh, we know the Chinese economy is hurting a little bit with all this uh, trade war stuff with Trump. I understand Trump's position and what he's trying to do. Uh, He's really not trying to use the tariffs as a way to generate income, you know, for the government or to offset, you know, the tax cut he put into effect two years ago. I think he's really trying to do it to send a message to China that over the years of your, you know, significant theft of intellectual property from American companies and from other companies abroad, we're going to put our foot down. We're not taking it anymore. And that's something China has been doing for a while. They've been getting away with it for a long time. They've been advancing their own technology and their own companies by stealing information, let's say, from other people and other companies. So I kind of commend Trump for being the first president or first person to want to kind of really take that issue on. I mean, we have tons of small businesses and big businesses, you know, throughout the U.S., throughout the, the world even, that have their intellectual property stolen by the Chinese. So I know that's, that's a big issue. And China has tons of trading partners. I mean, they are an export economy. So I think if Trump really wanted to hurt China, take it up to the next level, you know, rightfully so, if China invaded Hong Kong, you would see protests around the world from countries throughout Europe and Australia and uh, South America. I mean... They would be all against it, right? So 
what I think Trump would want to do at that point is kind of form a trade coalition with as many European countries as they can, with Australia and with as many South American countries as they can, to kind of get together and basically boycott China. Tell China, we're not going to buy any, of your, any more of your crap until you pull your troops out of Hong Kong and recognize their independence. You know, something along the, those lines. I mean, that some kind of trade boycott, like a worldwide trade boycott on China would cripple their economy. I mean, much more so than what we're doing, right? Because, you know, we're putting these tariffs on and you can still get Chinese goods and they cost a little bit more. And no, Trump is wrong about this part. The Chinese aren't paying the tariff. We are. So the consumers always pay the tariff. It's just the tariffs are just a tax. Okay. But anyway, it, it is hurting their economy, the little bit that we are doing. Well, what if Australia did the same thing? And what if, you know, 10 European countries did the same thing? You know, that China's 10 biggest trade partners, if they all decided to put a tariff on China at the same time or outright refuse to take any more of their products for, who knows, a certain period of time, I think China would back down pretty quickly. And, you know, that, that's using diplomacy smartly. That's not getting people... Uh, killed. That's not sending your young men and women off to war to uh, intervene unnecessarily and uh, start World War III. I mean, the goal here would be to kind of completely ostracize China on trade. And this is a simple kind of extrapolation of libertarian political philosophy, where uh, libertarians kind of believe in ostracization of individuals in a community, which can sometimes be used as a form of punishment or a way of, you know, commuting justice on someone for a wrong that they committed. And one day we can do a whole podcast on, you know, libertarian, you know, crime theory or punishment theory and get into all that. But anyway, I just wanted to make that point clear that I'm not in favor of us sending in the troops and invading another country. Okay, so now we can get on to the main topic, unless Joey wakes up, but I don't think he's going to. Poor kid has to sleep, I guess. Okay, so these mass shootings, right? So first thing I want to say is that I guess anyone that is so despondent and so sick that they'd pick up a gun and go shoot innocent strangers has a huge mental issue, right? And I think most of the time, right, these uh, mass shooting events, their perpetrator has found that they have some sort of mental health history. And more often than not, they're usually on some sort of psychotropic drug medication, uh, Dr. Ron Paul has been saying that for years, that we've been finding that in these studies, when they look at them, it's like these people who commit these atrocities are on all sorts of legal drugs, legal drugs sold to us by pharmaceutical companies. These legal drugs that are supposed to make you less depressed or less suicidal may in fact be kind of turning off a part of your brain that says, hey, maybe it's okay to go uh, kill somebody. Anyway, it seems like a lot of times that these people who commit these horrendous acts, they have a history of kind of mental issues that when you ask, I guess, people around them, people who know the shooter, many of these people would say, oh yeah, you know, I guess they, this person was giving off clues that they were unstable, but maybe they couldn't, you know, put two and two together and maybe it wasn't enough uh, to really warrant anybody to do anything. So on that note, uh, I'm going to tell you about a recent interview I heard. 
was on a Reason podcast with Nick Gillespie. He was interviewing this uh, really cool criminologist, uh, James Allen Fox. Okay, so uh, James Allen Fox, during the podcast, talked about differences between, you know, just the definition of a mass shooting versus mass killings. And then what a lot of the media likes to do is kind of use data from mass shootings and then they kind of play around with the number of a mass, you know, what, what constitutes a mass shooting? Is it two or more people, three or more, four or more, that kind of thing? And the media can conflate that data to show kind of anything they want statistically. So you got to be careful with what you hear on TV. Well, anyway, this James Allen Fox guy, he looks at the FBI data, uh, the best data that I guess anyone can get a hold of, and he says the overall trend for a long time now, the overall trend in these mass shootings and gun violence or in violence in general in America is still down. That these a couple of these mass shootings in recent years has caused a little blip up in these episodes. However, there's nowhere near enough of them that he can use the data to say whether this is a statistically significant blip. And he certainly said that there is definitely no way in hell that we're experiencing an epidemic of mass shootings. And he was very clear about that. Okay, so this guy, James Allen Fox, also writes for, I think, USA Today. And on a recent article, he talked about a few things that I want to mention. Okay, so he, uh, and he obviously he's making reference to, you know, the El Paso and Dayton massacres. And the idea that you can kind of, you know, work with the Justice Department to kind of detect mass shooters ahead of time, he says is, is largely wishful thinking. So he said, in a nation of 330 million people, on average, about two dozen people each year fatally shoot four or more victims. These figures present, and I'm reading this to you guys, so that's why it sounds weird. These figures present rather long odds for detection, predicting rare events, whether it's a plane crash or a tsunami or a mass shooting, with any degree of reliability is not possible. Whatever the indications of dangerousness are, they're just too many false positives. So individuals who fit the profile, but will not commit mass murder. So he's basically calling it, this, this is the needles in the haystack dilemma. There was, a, there was a large haystack, right, of people with similar characteristics who commit these mass shootings, right? You have people that are angry or depressed, socially isolated, or they blame others for their miserable existence. They write hateful words on social media sites. They play violent video games, and they might own a gun or two. There is a small number of actual people with those characteristics, actually an infinitesimally small number of people with those characteristics, who actually turn their angst into action. So that's the problem we're up against by trying to predict who is going to commit the next mass shooting. Okay, so next I'm going to go into an article on American Thinker. That's a website. I think it's AmericanThinker.com. And the title was, After Gilroy, Mass Shootings, A White Thing? Question mark. Oh, hell no. Okay, that was the title. So this guy, um, this author, Colin uh, Flaherty, he went into uh, just recent statistics in the two weeks leading up to the uh, mass shooting in Gilroy, California. And I mean, all of his stats he took from our, you know, big cities, right? You got some people in the media saying that it's these angry white people, these white nationalists that are committing these mass shootings. 
but then they completely ignore you know the daily gun violence in our big cities primarily in in the ghettos and then done by gangs and that kind of thing and he said of those shootings there were 34 in the two weeks leading up to leading up to the Gilroy shooting and 75% of those shooters were black I was okay so it's clearly not a white thing right let's say anybody can commit a mass shooting right you know the media has an agenda and by the media I, I mean all the channels so you have the leftist channels um, MSNBC CNN ABC, CBS, uh, and anybody else you can think of, and then you have kind of Fox on the other side, right? Both sides have an agenda. And the left side of the agenda never wants to talk about the gun violence in the cities. And the right side of the agenda always wants to talk about the gun violence in the cities and that these kind of random mass shootings are just blips. I guess they're both right and they're both wrong, right? They're, nobody's really getting to the heart of the problem, which to me is that there's really just some kind, something wrong with the culture of the country. And what do I mean by the culture of the country? Well, just for instance, look at the people who are on the coast of California and maybe the people who live in Alabama. Very different people, very different cultures, probably see eye to eye on less than 10% of the issues. Why are they being forced to live together under a single general government that tells everybody what to do, that every four years or four to eight years, one side is completely happy with and the other side completely hates? Could that be something leading to the culture problem that we have in this country? I think that's something that definitely needs to be talked about. And I mean, that's part of my prescription for healing the country is to kind of break it up. People in California don't want to have guns and ever, they think everything's going to be fine. Well, they, they can have that experiment on their own, not have guns, but they shouldn't really be telling people in Alabama or Texas or Florida what to do. Let people from other states or from other communities do what they want. Let, let, let's have hundreds or thousands of different little experiments across the country and see what actually works and what doesn't work. I mean, we already have many experiments that are going on right now. You have, uh, I don't know how many constitutional carry states where you don't even need a permit. You know, you just need it like you have a driver's license and you can get a gun and you can carry. And, you know, it just so happens in those states, gun crime happens to be pretty low. And gun crime in the states where the restrictions on guns are pretty harsh, they tend to have a lot of gun crime. So go figure. I mean, right there, there's an experiment that we should be talking about. Anyway, I guess from there, uh, I can dovetail into an article by uh, Ryan McMakin, who writes for the uh, Mises Institute. And he kind of just talks about, again, what this guy James Allen Fox did about how the homicide rate in America in recent years has, about, has been around half of what it was in the 90s. So the overall crime trend is still down. And I'll put the uh, article link in the show notes page so that you can go and check this out. But there were some pretty interesting uh, statistics in here that made sense when you really, you know, dive into the data. And towards the end of the article, he talks about that, you know, most people in the U.S. are kind of killed in America like the old-fashioned way, right? They're killed by, you know, a family member over a jilted lover or some street thug. Most people don't die in these mass shootings. I mean, the, the percentage of people that die from these mass killings is infinitesimally small. 
You know, you, you have more of a chance of getting struck by lightning than you do of, you know, dying in a mass shooting. However, the, you know, the policy or the public policy perspective and the way that the media and the pundits kind of push this issue, they, they're pushing it from a point of fear, right? They're saying, and it kind of makes some sense, right? The seeming randomness of these shootings kind of allows nearly the entire population to imagine that it could be, you know, affected or some kind of a victim of these mass shootings at any time. I mean, after all, these shootings occur anywhere, right? They can occur in churches or in schools or at the movie theater or at county fairs. You know, these are kind of places where ordinary people go. And what's important in a part of the article he mentioned is that these are places that voters go. This is why the media kind of likes to blow a lot of this stuff out of proportion, talk about it so much, make it such a political hot potato, right? It's because they're trying to get votes, right? So you have some politician that will come on uh, the news after a mass shooting and talk about how they're going to do something about it. And people, a lot of them are kind of rightfully scared after one of these events, right? And this politician is telling you that, or promising you that if you vote for me, I'm going to fix it. Trust me, these politicians don't care about you. They only want your vote. Don't believe them. Use your brain. Don't be a lemming. Don't be a sheeple. Think for yourself. What makes sense? What have you seen in the stats when you look at gun control, you know, heavy gun control in states like California and Baltimore area versus, you know, very liberal gun policies and you know, certain states like Arizona, Texas, and Florida. I mean, where do you have more, you know, people killing them, killing other people with guns? You have it in these kind of heavy, you know, gun control areas. And a lot of these mass shootings tend to happen, and not all, but a lot of them tend to happen in gun-free zones, right? So, I mean, think about it, right? If you're a criminal and you already know you're going to kill a bunch of people and maybe you got the gun legally or illegally, what's the difference? Right? Killing people is still illegal. What's it to you if you break another law by taking a gun into a gun-free zone? Right? Okay. It's, I mean, it's just a retarded argument that gun-free zones actually keep people safe. Anyway, overall, the crime statistics, the, the violence with guns is still on a downtrend for a long period of time. So don't let the media try to confuse you on that. We may have had just a recent blip up in some of these mass shootings, but... I think over time that will correct itself and the crime trend should still continue down. Okay, next topic, still kind of along the same issue, is, you know, what do you do in everyday life? How are you going to carry yourself out in, let's say, your neighborhood or when you go to the store, take the kids to school, that kind of thing? What should you be doing? Well, and I did do a kind of a prior podcast about this, and so I'm, I'm... Maybe not going to go into that much detail, but again, I want to start out just by saying something kind of obvious. You know, don't walk around with your head buried in your cell phone, okay? Obviously, we know texting and driving is not a good combination, but, you know, texting and walking is not a good combination either. I mean, I think every day there are new YouTube videos out there of people kind of walking into lakes or they walk into a street sign or walk out into oncoming traffic just because they're looking at their phone instead of, you know, walking around with their head up where they're supposed to be, you know, look kind of looking where you're going, right? Anyway, so that's at least my first bit of advice. Wherever you go, let's say you go to the grocery store 
Okay, keep your head up. Don't bear, don't be looking down in your phone the whole time. Get kind of an idea of your surroundings a little bit first. You know, you go to a restaurant with your friends. Okay, well, go in and look around at everybody. I mean, people watching is kind of fun, right? So, you know, come into the room, take a gander around, look at everybody. Just, Or you might spot something uh, that maybe doesn't belong, right? Somebody wearing a really long coat on a hot day or something like that, right? You know, somebody walking in with a large duffel bag or who knows. Anyway, I think the more you practice that, the better you'll get at it, the more you'll notice your surroundings. And, you know, probably the less you'll walk into a street sign when you're kind of walking and texting at the same time. Anyway, so that's my first bit of advice. Second thing would be to, when you, when you walk into a room, you go someplace, especially if it's not your house, I would make a note of your surroundings. Like, where, where are the exits? Obviously, there's an exit um, where you just walked in, right? So behind you. But where are the exits to the sides or in front of you? So an obvious example would be like a movie theater, right? Obviously, you can exit out the back, but I'm pretty sure every movie theater in America has exits at the front as well. I think they're required to. So that's something good to notice. So while you're looking around the room and noticing people, you're also noticing where the exits are. And I think over time, these sort of, I guess, you know, this training or this sort of habit you get into is just going to take, you know, 30 seconds. And then you can go back to being, having a normal evening, right? And then at that point, once you've kind of made those connections with the room and the room, the surroundings in the room, it's much easier for you to notice if something changes, right? If the mood changes, like if now you're already there, let's say someone else comes in afterwards with the intent to do harm, you might notice that. Whereas if before, you know, you had your head buried in your phone and you're not paying attention to things, you probably wouldn't notice that. Okay, so that's my first bit of advice. Okay, next, understand the difference between cover and concealment. Okay, concealment is maybe something you can hide behind where maybe someone with a gun can't hurt you, or I mean, someone with a gun can't see you, but they can still shoot through it, right? Let's say you're hiding behind a sheet or hiding behind a plastic chair. Well, that's, you know, okay, maybe they can't see you so well, but, you know, damn sure they can shoot through a a sheet or a plastic chair. Cover is something that actually can protect you. Like if you're going to hide behind a car or, you know, a metal table or something like that. So understand the difference. And in a mass shooting event, if you're lucky enough to understand when one is happening and you can do something about it, you want to seek cover and not concealment. Okay, another bit of advice is that these, these mass shootings, these people tend to just kind of shoot into the crowd. And they might not be looking for any one person in particular. So what you want to do is if, you know, during one of these events, you want to get away from the crowd as quickly as possible. Kind of separate yourself. It's much easier for a gunman to shoot a whole bunch of people that are bunched together rather than, you know, people kind of very spread out apart. Okay, the next bit of advice is kind of get an idea of what gunfire sounds like. Most people probably know what gunfire sounds like from the movies or TV shows, but if you don't, if you're one of those, you know, one in a billion people who actually don't know what gunfire sounds like, well then, you know, just go to YouTube and play a video, okay? There are tons of YouTube videos of people shooting guns. So you can do that pretty easily and for free. 
Okay, so get that in your head. All right, so uh, along the whole kind of situational awareness piece from before that I was talking about, about noticing people, noticing your surroundings, looking for the exits, and looking where good pieces of cover might be, the, the next thing to keep in mind is you gotta have a, you want to have a plan, okay? And there are only really three courses of action that you really need to think about here. Number one is escape. Get as far away from the threat as possible. Now, this is where maybe your early observant behavior comes in very handy because you're already going to know the escape routes. And, you know, if you're with family, if you're with vulnerable uh, children, then obviously your first choice of action is to get them to safety as quickly as possible. Okay, two is take cover. Now, we already went over what cover is and what concealment is, and you want cover and not concealment. So what does that mean? Well, get behind something solid and either wait for your opportunity to escape or wait for your opportunity to fight back. And when do you fight back? Well, many people are going to probably say this is debatable, but you can try to listen for the reload, right? Not all mass shooters are probably going to be, you know, practiced professional shooters where they can reload uh, a magazine in you know, under two seconds, right? It may take them a while. They might even be, you know, kind of nervous or they might be on like this adrenaline high of killing people where, you know, they go to reach for, you know, their backup magazine and their hand kind of shaking or fumbling. So listen for the reload. That might be your only opportunity to kind of charge this person, either yourself or with someone else and take the shooter out, grab the gun, grab the guy, I mean, regardless, if you, if you do nothing, you're probably going to be dead anyway. If you don't escape and you just stay there, there's a good chance you're going to get killed. So if, you're, if you know you're going to act and you know you're going to try to take the guy out, listen for the reload, and that's when you do it. Likely scenario is that if you charge the guy and you start wrestling with him, other people are going to join in and help. Okay, and the third thing is take out the threat. Okay, so we already went over charging the guy in a reload. Well, that's also a good time to shoot back. So if, if you are carrying, and probably carrying concealed, if you're in a state where they still kind of allow that sort of thing, you may have to use your skill at using a firearm to, you know, take out the perpetrator. If you do, you will more than likely save lives. As we have seen with these mass shootings, the only thing that really stops a mass shooting is someone shooting back, whether it's a citizen or a cop. And usually the cops are minutes away when seconds count. Well, that will do it for today. Thank you all for listening to the Liberty on Fire podcast. Please do me two favors. Number one is to share the show. Remember that we want to continue to advance the message of individual liberty, and sharing and growing the show is one of the best ways to do that. The second favor is to subscribe rate and review the show on iTunes. A five-star rating is much appreciated. Also, please check out our website, libertyonfire.org. Thank you very much. And until next time, let's keep those fires of liberty burning bright. Mm -hmm.